We're going to talk about the ark of God. Now, a lot of people don't know what the ark of God is. Let me tell you, how many of you seen Indiana Jones, kind of an old movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark? You saw that? Remember Indiana Jones, he goes in, and the, the Germans are trying to get the Ark of the Covenant because they think it has this mystical power, and, and if you uh, uh, have ever seen that scene, I wanted to show it, and I thought, I don't know if I ought to show the melting men scene, uh, but there's this great scene where, you know, they think they're going to capture God. And so they, they, they go through this whole process, and these angels of death come out of the Ark of the Covenant, and all of a sudden, they it, initially they're beautiful, and then they... They turn into these uh, these ministers of death, and then all the all the Germans just melt like wax figures. And you look at that and you go, "That's awesome! I'd love God to show up and do something like that someday." You know, I just want to be there and see it. Well, you know, the Ark of the Covenant is a fascination to people. In fact, I pulled up three different articles, and there are there are really the 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 internet is just replete with articles about the Ark of the Covenant. Let me give you the first one. This one was from Time Magazine. Time Magazine uh, published this article called A Lead on the Ark of the Covenant. And this is a, this is a search that's going on, and this search was, was leading this man into Africa who believed that he had a piece of the Ark of the Covenant and the wood part of it, and that he had done carbon-14 dating on it, and he could verify that, yeah, this was it, and he had people who were verifying that it was it. The next article was from the, the Daily Mail, which is a U.K. paper, and it says, will this be the first time the world sees the Ark of the Covenant? Now, if you know anything about what's going on in the world and the Ark of the Covenant, you know that it is supposedly an axum in Ethiopia. It has been guarded there since about 600 B.C. when it disappeared. When Babylon came in to, uh, into Israel and invaded, the Ark of the Covenant disappeared. They don't know what happened to it, where it went, but the Ethiopians say it's there. And that is because Solomon had made his way down into Ethiopia. He had married the Queen of Sheba, and that's why you have this largely, uh, a large Jewish population that is a part of Ethiopia, even today. Many of them were airlifted out and are now Israeli residents, but it is guarded 24 hours a day in this small town in Ethiopia called Axum. And it's not seen. They don't bring it out and they show it. The man who guards it, uh, the series of men who guard it, never are allowed to give their name. They're not allowed to answer any questions. And it's what surrounds it's a mystery. This article was about that roof on that ancient church dating back to about the 4th century was leaking, and they thought, Maybe they're going to bring it out and get it out of the way. And I'm thinking, you know, if I have the Ark of the Covenant and I tell you it's in that church, I've got it somewhere else. And it just heightens the mystery of it. The next one was the Keepers of the Lost Ark. This was in the Smithsonian Magazine. And this man wrote about four pages trying to search out and find, and he led him down to Axum and there to talk to these guards and try to get in. And, and, and finally, he came to the conclusion toward the end of it, and this was not a Christian man. This was not a religious man. He finally came to the conclusion that, should I sneak around and try to get in? And then he thought, what will happen to me if I actually catch a view of the Ark of the Covenant? He probably was remembering back to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Go, I don't want to be the melting wax guy, you know, on the Smithsonian front page. Well, as, we, as we're on this journey, we've come to this place where God is going to centralize worship. 
And he's going to centralize worship with this 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 um, vehicle called the Ark of the Covenant. It's really just a small box, about four feet by two feet, made of wood and covered in complete gold. But remember, it was the symbol of the presence of God on earth. Do you realize that you are the symbol of the presence of God on earth? That you are the temple of the living God? That God dwells in you and what pe- when people see God, they're going to see God in you and through you. And that's part of the miracle of what God does. Let me give you a wilderness report up to date. Here's the first point. See if you've heard this one. You can be in the middle of a miracle, finish it for me, and not know it. Secondly, you carry the treasure on the journey. See, you're on a journey, but the real treasure is Christ in you. In fact, that's what Christianity is. It's Christ living his life in you and through you, and the explanation of your life is not you but him. And the quicker you and I get out of the way, the more God can be seen in us. Third, only sacrifice opens the door to victory. Do you realize the reason we can enjoy salvation today, the power of the Holy Spirit, a transformed life, the forgiveness of sin, is because Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead. It was his sacrifice that gives us victory. What makes us think we're going to live our life any differently? We have to give up our right to live our life our way so that we can allow Christ to live his life in us and through us, and the explanation of our life is not us but him. It's Christ in you and Christ in me. That's Christianity. Let me take you to the verse. Exodus chapter 25. This is kind of a long section here, and I'm going to comment as we go through it to kind of help you understand what's happening. Because most people aren't doing their morning, morning devotions in the book of Exodus. They usually prefer Leviticus, right? Listen to what it says in verse 9. According to all that I show you, So God is going to reveal something. Do you know that God is a revealer, God? You know God wants to show you and you and you and every one of us something about who he is? He says here, according to what I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furnishings. Now, if you just want to make a note, Hebrews chapter 9 goes into greater detail, and it tells us that the pattern that was revealed there to Moses was a replica of what's in heaven. That Ark of the Covenant is not just a creative model that Moses came up with. God says, I want you to pattern it after the heavenly tabernacle, after the heavenly Ark of the Covenant. And it says in verse 10, And they shall make an Ark of Achaia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit uh, and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Anybody ever seen a cubit? Cubit is the distance between the top of your finger and your elbow. It's considered on most people about 18 inches. And that's just how they measured back then. They didn't have like the Stanley rulers. They said, no, let's, how many of those? Oh, about four of those. Okay, that's it. That's a cubit. And it says, you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four gold rings for it, Put them on the four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other, and you shall make poles of Achaia wood, and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. See, they were never allowed to touch the ark. In fact, the guys that did ended up like the melting men 
And they carried these poles, and it tells us why here. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark, for they shall not be taken out from it. You know why? Because God is a God who's always on the move. God never intended his presence to be static, but always dynamic. The Spirit of God in you is not meant to be static, but dynamic, always moving. When you see the Spirit of God in Scripture, he's always moving. He's never setting back and saying, oh, well. No, the Spirit of God moves in us and through us. And it says, and you shall put them into the ark, in, into the, ark the testimony which I will give you. You know what the testimony was? It was the Ten Commandments. So inside this box are the Ten Commandments. Now watch how significant that's going to be in just a moment. In verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and you shall make two seraphim of gold, hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. So on top of this lid is what's called the mercy seat, and these angels with outstretched wings are fanning over the top of this mercy seat. One cherub at one end, one cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of the one piece of the mercy seat, and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above the covering of the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. Now watch this. On the top of that mercy seat, when, they had, when the high priest went into the tabernacle or went in later to the temple, there was a sacrifice that was given. And that priest would walk in with blood. And he would sprinkle blood seven times on that mercy seat. See, seven is a number of completion. You see, we appeal to God on his mercy on the basis of the blood of Christ. That was a picture of what God was going to do. We go to the mercy seat of Jesus today. Now, what's right beneath the, the mercy seat are the Ten Commandments. You see, if God judges us by the Ten Commandments, then we're dead in our trespasses and in sins because nobody can keep the law. No one has ever kept all the Ten Commandments. I, I always get uh, a little bit humored at people who say, you know, when I say, well, do you know God or do you have a relationship with Christ? And they'll say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. And I say, well, how's that going? Well, not so good. I'm good on about six or seven of them. I said, well, you know, the only requirement God has is you always keep them and you never fail in them. So you're already done. You're already, it's too late. So God's standard for you and for me is perfection, and guess what? It's a little late for me. How about you? little late for me. Phil figured out a long time ago he was pretty good at sinning. Most people do. And there's something in us that just yearns for God, yearns to be close to God. We got to spend Saturday down at the beach with uh, uh, our son Josh and Kim and the two boys, Crosby and, and Cruz. And Cruz is about two and a half. And uh, Josh was telling me this story. He said, uh, he set Cruz down and he said, Cruz, if I could pick all the little boys in the world, you know which boy I would pick? Cruz says, Daddy, pick me. Pick me, Daddy. And Josh said, my heart just started to break that he would even wonder that whether or not I would pick him. And he's telling me that story. I'm thinking about my father, my heavenly father. 
And he looks all across the earth, and he says, if I could just pick one boy, you know who I'd pick? And I'm, in my heart, I'm crying out going, God, pick me. Pick me. And Josh says, Cruz, I pick you. Of all the little boys in the world, and, and now every day he says to Cruz, Cruz, do you know if I could pick all the, any boy in the world, you know which boy I'd pick? And he'd go, you'd pick me, Daddy. You see, that's a transition from an understanding of what you hope into what really is. It's the reality of knowing God, that God indeed in Christ has picked you to love you and care for you and watch over you. And in our heart, we cry out, and and this whole thing about the mercy seat, he says, I know you want me to pick you. I can't pick you on the basis of your good deeds because they're too late. I pick you on the mercy of God, the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, what good news that is. In verse 22, and there I will, look what God says, I will meet you there. God says, I'm going to meet you at the mercy seat. I will speak to you from above the mercy seat, from between the cherubim on the ark of the testimony, about everything I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Here's a problem we all deal with. We so long to be validated, don't we? Don't you want people to validate you? Validate what you do? Validate you as a person? Validate your sense of worth? We so long for it that we, we center our life around people and things who will somehow validate us. The problem is it never lasts. It's never enough. You will never make enough money. You will never have enough friends. You'll never have enough great experiences. You'll never do enough good things to feel validated your whole life unless you're validated by God and God alone. It doesn't mean that craving our heart is not there for human uh, uh, you know, validation, but it ultimately comes back to God. We also crave communication. You know, you know, smartphones have changed us a lot, have they not? I mean, I don't know. I'm addicted. I know I am because I can't go anywhere, and I, I pull out, and I'm going, gosh, I wonder if somebody emailed me. You know, and I'm not alone. I stand in line at a coffee shop, and there's, you know, 15 people in front of me all with their heads down like ostriches, you know, and we're just... We're pecking away. Yeah, look, look at there. And I was standing in front of a girl, and, and she pulled her phone out, and she looked at it, and she turned it off. She put it in her back pocket. I thought, well, that's good. She put it away. Fifteen seconds passes. What does she do? Pulls it back out. She's got to check it again. There's 15 seconds. Somebody could have emailed her. She repeated that exercise about six times before she ever got her coffee. As soon as she got her order, she goes over there and begins the pecking exercise all over again. See, we crave for communication. Guys, have you ever heard this from your wife? We need to communicate. We're just not communicating. Now, what wives don't understand is guys don't want to. No, I don't need to communicate. I'll just grunt and moan and and holler once in a while, and we're fine, right? We need to communicate. I told Tammy the other day, this is going back maybe a a month or so ago, and I said, you know, I, I don't think we should ever communicate again. I think we should just talk. Because every time I hear the word communicate, I get mad. I'm thinking, well, I am communicating. Why aren't you communicating? I said, let's just talk from now on. No, we can't use the communication word at all. But, you know, we're created to communicate. And when we talk to somebody, we expect them to talk back. When we do something for someone, we expect them to reciprocate, right? Like I held the door open for somebody the other day, and all I wanted was a thank you. Just walked in there like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? 
I'm standing there, and my first response was to trip him. So I didn't do that. I followed my second response. I says, hey, you're welcome. Didn't even acknowledge my welcome. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm waiting for you to come out to your car. I'm going to get you right now. But, you know, we do have that expectation, don't we? And, you know, most of all, we have an expectation that God will talk to us. When I pray, I expect God to talk. And I don't know about you, but sometimes he gives me the silent treatment. You ever had that experience? I mean, it really is a serious moment when you really want to hear from God, and you're serious, you'll do whatever God tells you to do, and you don't know what he's telling you to do. Created in the image of God, we have that expectation. We'll also travel down any path to find someone who will tell us what God is doing in our life. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was all about God communicating. How God was going to communicate in that day, how God would communicate in a latter day through Jesus Christ, and how God is communicating today. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, wrote this. The history of mankind will probably show that no people have ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is as pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most horrendous uh, fact about any man is not what he is Uh, He is at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. You see, the way that you think God is may or may not be helping you in your process, and the only way you can know how God is or what God is like is from his word. Let me talk to you first about the doorway to heaven. Israel in bondage 400 years. And God liberated them so they could worship him freely, worship him, and God could take them into a land. You see, we have been set free. You know, one of the entanglements we all have, and whether we like it or not, we have idols in our life. We have idols in our life. Let me show you how you can identify an idol. And if you'll write this down or go back and listen to it, and I just, by the way, I just want to do a shout-out to our congregation in Abu Dhabi, United Emirates, or we have our planted our first international church, and they're about 10 hours ahead of us. I want to do a shout-out to Cinema City. I want to do a shout-out to Theater One, where we have people listening, and then our Internet congregation that watches this on live stream. We love to communicate, but let me tell you this truth. If you want to know the idols in your life, Follow your emotions. They will lead you to your idols. Follow your emotions. What upsets you? What challenges you emotionally? It will probably lead you back to an idol. You see, what we do is we worship the wrong object sometimes. We worship the wrong God. Sometimes we worship the right object. We worship the true God in the wrong way. Sometimes we just worship self. It's really about what we want. Sometimes we just neglect worship altogether. That ark that God gave was the center. It was the center of of God's divine presence. Do you know the center of God's divine presence in your life is you? 
You are the temple of the living God. You are the center of God's worship right now. And there is something mystical that happens because Jesus referred to it when two or more of you are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. So he says, whatever that is, that presence that's in your heart, it's amplified and it is made greater when we gather together. God gave them this this design, which was a wooden box covered in gold. It had two natures, really. It had this, this metal nature and this wooden nature. And it was a picture of the presence of God. In Colossians chapter 2, it says this, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit. You know, people will try to steal from you the joy of God through philosophy and empty deceit. They'll say to you, well, you know, God's really not like that, do you think? Oh, I know the Bible says that, but I don't know if that's true. I believe some of the Bible, but not all the Bible. They're going to try to cheat you, try to steal from you, according to the tradition of men and the basic principles of the, of the world, and not according to Christ. But listen to what it says. For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You know who Jesus Christ is? He is fully God and fully man. That wooden box, it was fully wood and fully gold. And it was a picture of the coming Christ, who would be fully gold, fully God, fully wood in the sense of, of this earth, and fully man. And in him you are complete, who is the head of all the principality and power. First Timothy says this, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Do you realize Jesus was not merely the Son of God? He was God himself living and moving among us? Do you realize the neighbors that live next door to you are living next to the God of the universe in the sense that he's in you? And the only God they may understand is the God in you. The only invitation they ever may clearly get from God is, the, is as you speak to them from the God that is in you. See, we're given an awesome responsibility. No wonder the Bible says we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. No wonder the Bible encourages us to live out our faith in the lives of people. This is not just about us in a consumer environment trying to get our needs met. This is about the God of the universe living his life in us. This is the way that God is known in our world is through you and through me. The emphasis that we place on on the Savior sometimes is all about what he's done for us. Well, what about who he is? Let me show you this. In, first, uh, in John chapter 1 and verse 29, it says, Behold the Lamb of God. That's who he is. That's his person. Which takes away the sin of the world. That's his work. That pattern is repeated throughout Scripture. It's always, who is Jesus? What has he done? And most of the times we get caught up in what is he doing for me instead of who he is. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I determined not to know you anything among you save Jesus Christ, that's who he is, and watch this, and him crucified, that's his work. Let me show you the symbol of his presence on earth. God is not contained, confined, or defined by the ark he has revealed. Jeremiah chapter 23 and 24, do not I fill heaven and earth, says the Lord. Is God here? The question, is God here? Is God over next door in the empty theater? Is God down at the local bar? 
It's going to get scary now. Is God in hell? See, God is in hell by his acts of judgment. God is here by his acts of mercy. You cannot deny that God is everywhere all the time. That's who God is. That's why the psalmist said, if I ascend into the heavens, behold, you art there. If I ascend into hell, behold, you art there. If I make my bed in the grave, behold, you art there. You know what that does for all of us? It brings personal integrity and accountability before our face. If we understand and live in the power of the presence of God, we know that everything we do is closely watched by God himself. 1 Kings 8.27, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you, God. God is bigger than all of his creation. Isaiah 61, or 66.1, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me? Solomon has just built the most magnificent temple the world has ever known, and he says, Solomon, great job, but let me tell you something. The earth is simply my footstool. What is this place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things are mine, says the Lord. So God is always revealing himself, and, and if you go back, think about it like this. If you go back to the, to the book of Genesis, what is God doing? He's there with, with um, Adam and Eve in the garden. It says God was in the midst of the garden with Adam and Eve. He's revealing himself. We've seen in this story here today that God was there with Moses revealing himself. As we go down through history, we see that God creates this tabernacle. God's revealing himself. Then God comes as Christ. He reveals himself. When you give your, put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in you so God can reveal himself. Guess what happens in the book of Revelation? You have a garden again, and guess what God's doing? He's with man. We're living in the presence of God himself, and when we do that, it, it allows us to experience his favor and his love and his grace. Let me show you the blood of the covenant. Do you know why the blood is so important? Do you know why it's so significant? When I was in, uh, when I was in seminary, I was doing a series of, of, of revival messages in this small town. And the first night, I've, I've only told this story a couple of times because it's such an incredible story. I, I, uh, I preached that night on the blood of Christ, the first night. And I was followed out to my car by an elderly gentleman who was very nice. And he said to me, I need to say something to you. And I said, okay. And I thought he was going to encourage me or pray for me or whatever. And he said, I don't want you to ever preach on the blood of Christ again. And I I didn't think I heard him right, and I said, what? He said, I don't want you to ever preach on the blood of Christ at this church again. And I said, well, that's what Scripture's all about. It's about the blood of Christ. And he said, be warned. And I drove home thinking, what am I doing, God? You know, I, I think I need to go back to law school. This is, a, this is a spiritual world I'm living in. This is odd. So I drove off, and when I came back the next morning to do some morning Bible studies, uh, the pastor of that church was standing out in the parking lot, and he was picking up scraps of paper. I thought, this is odd. What's going on? And so I pull up, and I said, Rob, what's going on? And he said, uh, uh, it looks like 
you left you must have left your Bible on the top of your car and it blew off and because I couldn't find my Bible, my little New Testament and and uh, that I was preaching out of all week, and it had pages just ripped out of it. And on the outside, it had had claw marks or teeth marks, and I thought, wow, that's really weird. And and um, he said an animal must have got it in the middle of the night, you know, probably smelled the leather and just kind of ripped it up, and it sounded like a good explanation to me. And so I started thumbing through my Bible. And it wasn't just some pages that were torn out. It, was, it almost seemed like it was strategic in the pages that were torn out. The first page that was torn out was Romans 5. It's what I preached on that night before. I started going through it, and I, had, I didn't have my Bible marked where I would be preaching, but I knew, and I hadn't announced it, and I went through it, and every page where I was going to preach that week had been removed. Still have that Bible. It's, there's a mystery surrounding it, but I know it goes back to the blood of Christ. You say, what happened? I don't have a clue. Draw your conclusions. But something demonic was working in that place. I went back that night, and I preached the next five series of sermons on the blood of Christ. The guy never showed back up, by the way. Exodus 25, 22, I will meet with you and I will speak with you, God says, and I will give you the testimony. I will give you everything you need. If you only remember one verse, remember this one. God says, I will meet with you and I will speak with you and I will give you the testimony. I will give you what you need to say. Romans chapter 3 says this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's me. How about you? Whom God has set forth. Here's a big word propitiation. How do you like that word? I'm going to give you the easiest definition I can for that word. It means God is satisfied. It's translated mercy seat. It says here that God is your mercy seat. Through faith in his blood to declare the righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. God is satisfied with you in Christ. You don't have to prove your worth to God. You don't have to be validated by anybody else. God loves you. God validates you. God is satisfied with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you but Christ and him crucified. 1 John chapter 4, in this the love of God was manifest toward us that while God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this love, not that he loved us, but that God so loved us that he sent his son to be the mercy seat for our sins. God is your mercy seat. Hebrews 9, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God to cleanse your conscience from dead works. Anybody got a a guilty conscience? Don't raise your hand, but you got a guilty conscience about something? Do you know that's why Jesus died in one part? to cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve a living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now watch what he says here. Your conscience is clean. Right now, here's what I want you to do. I want you just to think. Let your mind go. Let the Spirit of God open it up. Is there anything right now you have a guilty conscience about? My guess is probably yes. Would you just ask God to cleanse you of a guilty conscience by confessing sin to him? God, I just confess to you. 
I shouldn't think that thought, do that deed. It may be you have to go and you have to, you have to do something to make that right, but right now you can have your conscience clean by God. I can't tell you how many men have come to me over the years, even recently, with a guilty conscience. And they'll tell me some, some guy's story that only guys could do. You know, guys can get themselves in more dumb situations. Amen, guys? I mean, they don't try. They're just naturally dumb. We just, we just do it naturally, you know? And they'll look at me and I go, what should I do? And I say, well, the first thing, you've got to quit. Second thing, you've got to seek the cleansing that comes from God. Cleanse you from a guilty conscience, and then you have to start serving a living God. When you serve God, it removes a million barriers in your life. And then receive, if you haven't already, receive that eternal inheritance of God. God, what do you have for me? Not salvation, but inheritance. That you've blessed me to be a child of a living God. What a blessing that is. You see, unless we come to the end of ourself and figure out what the idols are in our life, we can never serve the true God. I really believe that some people, their biggest idol in their life is the way other people, they think, view them. It's not the way that they see themselves. They don't see themselves as great, but it's the way other people see me. And it keeps you from doing so much good stuff, like telling people about Christ. It keeps you from, from praying with boldness and power. It keeps you from everything. Let your emotions, follow your emotions, and they will lead you back to the place of probably an idol in your life. Here's a couple of life applications. You're going to move Move in the direction of God. Don't move apart from God. Don't stand still, but move in the direction of God. God, I want to move in your direction. Even under your breath right now, you can say, God, I want to move in your direction. And then let others see the treasure inside of you. Let people see Jesus Christ living his life in you and through you. Let it be powerfully lived out in your life. Talk of his name. Speak of his name. Lift up his name. Give God the glory all the time for what God is doing in your life. Just give him praise and give him glory. God wants to be all-powerful in your life and in my life, in the life of this church, and he can do that. Remember, you are the representation. You are the living out of God in this world today, and you have a big responsibility. Let's pray together. Father, as we pray together, we ask right now that every heart in this room would seize the moment, seize the opportunity that they have, that we have, to love you and to be filled with you. And God, you gave us the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of what it means to see the presence of God and that glory that would come down in that ark. And God, now you've given us um, your spirit in us to live out and let people see the glory of God. God, when we sing, we should sing for the glory of God. When we live, we should live for the glory of God. God, when we worship, we should worship with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our souls. And God, even though we long to be validated by man, we know that ultimately it comes from you. So, God, right now in our own spirit, we just say, thank you, God, for validating me. Thank you, God, for loving me. Thank you, God, for caring for me. Thank you, God, for allowing me to worship you in spirit and in truth. You won me over, God. 
You touched my heart with your love, and I give you praise. In the name of Jesus, our Lord.